Uh, how is the code coming along? The coat. Code. Oh, code. Code. Yeah, I was going, oh, flipping it. Am I Joseph of the Technicolored fame or something? <laughs> Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to the Lunatic Podcast. This is episode 14. My name is Andy, a self-appointed moon expert, and I'm doing this show with my co-host Rick, who is the self-appointed everyman. Hello, Rick. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And we're recording this on the 8th of July, so any moon news that comes out after here, for example, the moon got struck by the Triton, uh, it won't be in the podcast because... (laughs) We can't predict the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can't predict the future. Uh, I've got a feeling this episode is mostly going to be foreign moon news, where we're going to be talking about moons around Mars, Jupiter, Neptune... Pluto, and an asteroid moon as well. Uh, One that I think we've actually mentioned on the podcast before. Of course, got some local moon news, full moon of the month, and then, of course, we've got And The Next Moon Is, which this episode is going to be Io. When I um, looked at this, basically everything else in my life is quiet at the moment because of pandemic, so you just sit in and do nothing, and then nothing happens, and it's interrupted by nothing. (laughs) Um, However, when I got the... When I got the moon notes, it's just like, what, 17 pages of moon stuff has happened. So I don't know what's going on in the world of moons. All the scientists have decided, well, let's just discover stuff or let's look at the old data or something. Uh, Yeah, there is a lot of going through old data. There's also a lot of new discoveries based on processing new images as well, which we'll get to in the relevant stories. We usually start out the show by talking about moon news, news that's happening on our own moon. A lot of it is about like mission updates and talking about like SpaceX and starting to get a little bit bored of just talking about like, oh, this person's decided to put this cube on the moon and whatnot. And we don't often get to talk about a lot of foreign moon news, whereas this episode is just going to be bumper foreign moon news which i'm quite happy to talk about for a change but yeah you're spot on everybody's like publish now we've found something let's do this now yeah i mean as a corollary of that i'm guessing that now scientists aren't allowed to go out social distance and party like everyone else they're staying in and discovering stuff so maybe scientists were uh, actually the more party animals than we realize <laughs> actually getting stuff done for a change <laughs> yes It was them having all the illegal raves uh, previously. (laughs) They're they're like technically minded. They know how to light the venues. They know how to uh, tap into the fuse boxes and the wires. So they'll be able to like turn a deserted warehouse, hook it up to a generator. And then they've got uh, an illegal rave going. Although I had a neighbour once who was into the illegal rave scene. And basically to rig up the warehouse that they'd squatted in. It involved giving one of the newcomers basically rubber gloves and some big crocodile clips and <laughs> and told to go and attach the clips to the the lamppost uh, <laughs> and uh, oh they got some wellington boots as well whilst all their sort of mates who were they'd sold all the tickets and this was a few hours beforehand so they they were partially worried about this poor sort of shivering teenager's life but partially all the riot that would kick off if this electricity didn't work Surely they should have tested it beforehand. 
<laughs> I don't think that's how illegal squatting raves work, Andy. I don't, I don't think they can ask, can we just go in three weeks beforehand and just set up a test run? They don't do a risk assessment. No. <laughs> yeah, yes. Actually, they do, Andy. And they said, you know what? A pair of rubber gloves and some Wellington boots and a sort of gap year student is fine. As long well, as soon as we crowbar off the, the shield of the lamppost, we'll just wedge on some uh, crocodile clips. And therefore, we're good for the evening. Well, gap year students are ten a penny now anyway, so that's fine. Well, that's, <laughs> that's it. So that's obviously why the illegal rave scene's coming back. Clearly, clearly. And since you haven't been attending these illegal raves how how is the along? just just to confirm this was a genuine like a friend of a friend type story it's not oh yeah it's a friend of a friend and it was me no (laughs) (laughs) looking in the mirror the entire time yeah no no this was no this was genuine someone else i have not attended an illegal rave or a legal rave i'll be honest so uh yeah let's, let's just clarify that Okay, sure thing. Methinks the Rick doth protest too much. But how is the code coming along? Yeah, the code code is going well. Um, refactoring it again, redoing the parser, but it's it's getting there. And can't remember how long it was going before, but it's, it's now making a bit more sense. But it's got another uh, few months on it. But my bank account's running out, so I might have to go and get a proper job, which means I'll go, go down from like five days a week working on it to one in evenings or something. Yes, pesky, pesky bank balance, (laughs) always depleting. Yeah, pesky bank managers wanting their mortgage repaid and supermarkets wanting money for the groceries. So if you're not going to be able to work on the code, uh, is there anything else in the to-do book? Because you had that massive notebook of things that you were wanting to work on. Anything else from that that has come to fruition? Uh, I worked on the moon game, actually. The moon board game. Oh, really? Yeah, I've got the mechanics sort of done. And I I did some research as well just to make sure what moon games are out there at the moment so we're not treading on their toes. There's not any about actually landing on the moon. There's one that is called something like the moon game. And it's basically the premise is you're in a lunar lander and you've got to reprogram it so you can escape. And you've got what is a binary shift register, (laughs) a binary register of ones and zeros, and you can apply certain operations like or and 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 add to it, and you've got to get a certain pattern. So it's great for me, who's a computer scientist, but it has very little to do with the moon. It could equally be (laughs) like it could equally be you are a vending machine user trying to get a Mars bar out of an inordinately complicated vending machine. It is basically doing these binary manipulation. So yeah, that's good. And uh, I've got the basic sort of economics engine worked out-ish at a high level. I now need to do it at a lower level. Okay, that's really interesting. Because uh, I know that like getting to the moon is essentially already a computer game in the form of Kerbal Space Programme. And you can't do other space exploration as well. But the fact that it's like a collaborative thing and like you have to work on this bit and your country has to work on that bit or company as it may be. <laughs> when, when we've polished it all off, we could probably have the do ticket to ride and do like, oh, we've got the company edition and then we've got the Russia edition. Well, that's it. Yeah, I did want to model the difference between the company's Sorry, the country's industry and the country's space agency. So that's 
in the economics. So I can work with your space agency and I can distrust your industry to deliver good quality fuel and stuff like that. So you kind of got like, for example, cards that indicate quality of the component. So if you're buying fuel, it might have a whole wodge of cards that have a three and a two and a nine, meaning it's all over the place, whereas another country might have a thing that gets rid of all their three cards, two and one, so you've got a better quality fuel coming out of their industry. Oh, okay. So, But you don't know exactly what quality the fuel is, but generally it's going to be high numbers. Yeah, that's that's kind of the mechanics of the game, which I haven't seen done elsewhere. So, yeah, that's that's the kernel of it. So it's, it's getting there very slowly. Oh, fantastic. Well, I look forward to more developments as uh, yeah. as the weeks of lockdown progress. Yeah, I did look to um, sort of copy Kerbal Space Program. Not copy, but just be inspired by it, because they seem to have done loads, but it's very complicated and so on. So, <laughs> so it's like, okay, this is this is just a board game, so I'll, I'll keep it simple. Have you played Kerbal Space Program? No, not yet. It was bought for me as a birthday present a while back, but I've been... I've been pretty busy recently working on a moon video for... I'm putting so much effort into this video for what is essentially worthless moon. It's uh, it's Kale, the one that I kicked up a fuss about in the, you know, ranking all the moons. And, like, Kale came much higher. So I'm putting all this effort into this video for what is essentially a pointless moon. Uh, even though it's not really pointless, it like it helps us know the orbital dynamics. But yeah, uh, you'll see it when it comes out, and you'll be like, "Why has he done this?" But I had to do something to make the video interesting, and I think I've uh, gone above and beyond in this case. Brilliant. Shall we crack on with the show and actually talk about some moon-related stuff? Uh, yes. Why not? Because that's what we do. So we'll start off with a little bit of moon news, as in news about Earth's moon, and it turns out the moon is more metal than we thought. Yeah, I didn't think it was much metal. I thought no, it, it, is quite, it is quite metal. It's really into Slayer and a bit of In Flames and Every Time I Die gets Kerrang! weekly and occasionally Metal Hammer if its parents are feeling generous. I thought it was mainly soil. <laughs> it's mostly uh, rock. Um, well, there's always going to be updates uh, thanks to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. New findings, new scans of the surface, and there's just this plethora of data out there. So you get all these teams just dive into it. It's kind of like a metal detector on the beach. Let, let's let's see what's out there. One of the niggles about the origins of the moon is that the Earth has been deplete in metals. There's been some there and they've done some studies and soil analysis, but basically the argument against the giant impact hypothesis is, oh well, where's all the metal? You know, if Earth had separated into its core and its mantle and it had all this liquid metal in it, surely when Theia, that the impactor that hit the young Earth, surely when Theia hit Earth and threw up all this material into into space and, and the moon formed from this material, where's all the metal? Well, it turns out it was just deeper in the soil than it was intended. So they looked at the state of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and they noticed there wasn't much metal in the Lunar Highlands. It was mostly the silicate that you find here on Earth. So it's like, yeah, that's all well and good. That matches. But where's the metal? So it turns out the metal is actually in the soil. And when they looked at craters, the bigger the crater was, the more metal was in it because craters are deep and when a comet, an asteroid, an impactor, whatever, hits the moon's surface, excavates the soil, goes down deep into the moon's crust, 
oh, well, what do you know? There's a bunch of metal here. So that's basically what it's saying. In a very much glossing over the science of it, there's more metal on the moon than previously thought, which lends credence to the giant impact hypothesis, which is a good thing. Cool. So science is perfectly consistent now. Well, not perfectly. There's <laughs> No uh, more the questions. Team... <laughs> that's it. Show's over. Yeah, the team emphasises that the new study can't directly answer the outstanding questions about the moon's formation, but it does reduce the uncertainty in the distribution of iron and titanium oxides in the lunar subsurface and provides critical evidence needed to better understand the moon formation. Uh, that's hot off the press from NASA, which I think sums it up perfectly. It's like, imagine the giant impact hypothesis is uh, a jigsaw puzzle. We've got most of it. We've we've got the we've got the borders and the corners sorted, and we're just piecing together the whole thing. But you've actually got to go around the house and find the pieces to put in the actual jigsaw puzzle. So there's some pieces we don't even know that are there to go in. Others we're just discovering and making a better picture as we go. But the yeah, I mean the lack of metal though. I think you said before that was quite a big piece to put in. That's as though someone has been work. You know when someone is working on their bit of the jigsaw, it's like oh we we'll give Fred all the green bits. And Fred goes and puts them together and then brings them all back as a wanna and puts it in. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a turtle. Yeah. Is, is that analogy apt? Because it sounds like, a you know, one of the main criticisms for the giant impact hypothesis was the lack of metal. Now that's been not solved, but quashed a bit. Uh, certainly quashed a bit. There'll be other questions as well. But this, like, like I said, lends credence to the actual theory. Oh, that's good. Something that uh, I did find quite interesting, though. When I, when I look for like moon-related news, I'll find a headline and then I'll look for other sources on it, make sure like it's not just like taken out of context or uh, see other takes on the story. A lot of them came from mining-related websites and like mining news and just like for investors, you know, to kind of like those who are like really into investing in gold, for example, uh, they'll like be following these like miners websites but yeah it like the moon is cropping up more and more on these mining websites which is really interesting well as soon as they find gold on the moon or something and then or any metal and they can get it back then the price will probably drop oh yes yeah absolutely i think i've spoken about this in one of the shows that i did an asteroid called psyche I think it is. It's theorised that there's a lot of gold on it. It's just like, oh, it'll make everyone a billionaire on Earth if we brought it back. It's like, no, it'll flood the market. It'll be, make gold worthless. It'll bankrupt people who have, like, gold doubloons that they're hoping to retire on. <laughs> gold doubloons. <laughs> yeah, you all those pirates e yearning for, for retirement. The, yeah, the age of piracy is... Or the golden age of piracy has slightly declined. I don't know. Internet piracy is pretty rife. Yeah, I, d I don't think people send gold doubloons over, like, lime wire and stuff. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I used to have lime wire as a, as a teenager, and I even used lime wire to download lime wire pro, so I didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> It's probably virus-ridden. Oh, Christ, yes, it was. Well, that, that, yeah, that was basically all you got on LimeWire was different types of viruses, but they were pretending to be different Dr. Dre songs. That was... <laughs> yeah, Green Day's Basket Case .exe. Oh, not familiar <laughs> with, with that musical format. Uh, so, yeah, in a nutshell, there's more metal on the moon than previously thought, and this backs up the giant impact hypothesis a little bit. Hooray! So we're going to now talk about some foreign moon news for a bit. In fact, for probably the bulk of the show. And what I'm going to do is go from the closest moon to Earth outwards. So I'm going to, it's going to feature the moons of Mars, some moons of Jupiter, and some asteroid moons as well. So we'll start off with 
the moons of Mars, uh, specifically Deimos. And this is actually a really, really interesting theory. <laughs> and it's basically Phobos is a lot younger than Deimos because... Sorry, just for the new listeners, who are Phobos and Deimos? Of course I know, but I forget between each podcast. Oh yes, th- thank you everyman. Phobos and Deimos are the two moons of Mars. Deimos is the furthest out one, Phobos is the one that's further in. Phobos is actually migrating inward slightly due to tidal forces pulling on Phobos, so it's actually dragging it in towards Mars, so eventually it'll get close enough to Mars that the gravitational pull of Mars will rip apart Phobos and turn it into a ring, whereas Deimos is actually migrating further away from Mars, again due to tidal forces. So Phobos is thought to be significantly, well, Phobos is significantly younger than Deimos, and it's thought that Phobos originated from a ring that formed on Mars. And in fact, Deimos is thought to have formed from the same ring. However, out of this ring, Deimos migrated outwards, out of the ring, and got to the orbit it is now. Whereas Phobos, or predecessor to Phobos, also formed from this ring, moved close to Mars, tore apart, formed a new ring, and another moon formed out of it. So they're actually thinking that Phobos is a second, maybe even third generation moon out of this ring debris that orbited Mars millions of years ago. So in a nutshell, Mars had a ring, the two moons formed from the ring, Deimos formed from the original ring, whereas Phobos came from a previous ring that was formed from one of the original moons that tore apart by Mars. This is a, like astonishing discovery or theory that's been put forward, because the math is all there and it works. Yeah, uh, how, how was this discovered? Is it sort of mathematical models or um, just someone in a pub with a few drinks just saying, I know, <laughs> one of the moons <laughs> formed once and the other one two or three times. Hey. Uh, yeah, it will be mathematical models. I think it's called the Ring Satellite Cycle Model, and it's been put forward by scientists at the SETI Institute and Purdue University. Uh, So they've said that Mars has had a series of rings appearing in cycles over billions of years, and it will have rings again in the future from when Phobos goes in. So Phobos will go in, uh, like migrate into Mars, get torn apart by the gravitational pull, form a ring. Some of this ring will be depleted, by the way. Some of it will actually rain down on Mars and like cause impacts, but it will eventually form another moon over time. And if you look at Mars, there's this huge shallow basin, I think on the North Pole or the South Pole, but there's this huge shallow basin, which often comes from an impact, like there's one on the moon as well, like this huge crater that's flat now, but that's because of the lava that filled it up. But Mars has the huge impact basin on it, which is probably where the original ring that both Phobos and Deimos formed from. Okay, and this was a ring as in, like, Saturn has a ring? Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a ring of debris. Like, it doesn't matter how big a planet or an object in space has to be. Like, there's an asteroid called Chirilco? Chiricolo. I'll call it Chiricolo. This is a tiny asteroid, and it's got a ring around it. Uh, like, the trans-Neptunian object of Haumea, which is like this pebble-shaped dwarf planet, that's got a ring around it as well. So, it doesn't really matter how big an object is. Quite often, it's got a ring of debris orbiting it. Jupiter's got a ring, Saturn's got a ring, Uranus has a ring. I think Neptune has a very, very faint one as well. Uh, There haven't been any discovered around Pluto, but there's still a lot more data to pour through, so there could well be a ring around Pluto. 
Can we get one for Earth? There's practically a ring. There's that many satellites up there at the moment. Um, there might be... I, actually, I don't know if there is a ring around Earth. No, there won't be, because we'd have seen it and we'd have done studies on it. Uh, but there was originally a ring around Mars, which is no longer there because it all formed into Phobos or rained down on the planet. I think the, the researchers summarised it best, which is... We can tell that only an outward moving moon could have strongly affected Deimos, which means that Mars must have had a ring pushing the inner moon outwards. They deduce this moon may have existed 20 times as massive as Phobos and may have been its grandparents existing just over 3 billion years ago. That was followed by two more ring cycles, with the latest being Phobos. <laughs> they say our best bet, something like 3 point billion years ago, once the ring was gone, the moon started falling because of the Martian tides. Once it was too close to Mars, the tidal forces would pull apart this old moon, form a ring, and the cycle would repeat, probably twice, to get the Phobos we see. I think this is really quite interesting, just the fact that originally it was thought that Phobos and Deimos were captured asteroids because they orbit, they're just tiny little pebbles that orbit Mars, but by doing more and more studies on them, we learn more about them. And like a separate news article that came out actually lends credence to this theory, which is using new photos taken by the Mars Odyssey orbiter. So they took photos of Phobos and from this, they managed to infer that Phobos is relatively uniform, so it's made up of roughly the same material, and it's very fine-grained material, and it's mostly basaltic, which indicates it came from a volcanic origin. So this is all stuff from, like, impact debris, and if it's all made of the same stuff, then that makes sense that it formed from a ring, formed into the moon it is now, very fine-grained material, because it coalesced over time from a ring of mostly basaltic material, lava material, other studies, it's not mentioned in this article, but when I did the Phobos video, um, I was researching the density of it, and Phobos is quite porous, so it's got a lot of caverns within it, so it's, I think it's got a porosity of about 40%, which is unlike the asteroids and the asteroid belts, which are actually quite solid. So, again, this lends theory to the fact that, oh, it's from a ring that formed from an impact on Mars, and we'll be able to get more information from it because yet another article about Phobos, it's been a busy month for Phobos, uh, the Indian Space Research Organization or ISRO have actually sent a uh, Mars orbiter and it's been around Mars since 2014 and it's finally managed to take a photo of Phobos. Uh, the original article was like, India has achieved this monumental thing and they're absolutely right, it is monumental that they've sent this probe to Mars and not only managed to successfully put it in a stable orbit, that it actually managed to come out of that and orbit Phobos and take photos of it. That's fantastic. They didn't include the bloody photos in the article though, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I had to go to other articles to find them. Oh right, they have taken the photo because there's that old thing on, you know, online gaming, you know, screenshot or it didn't happen. So, yeah, they say, oh, yeah, I took a photo, but, yeah, well, we're not showing you. So th th there is a photo. Yeah, it's, it's a bit blurry, but that's because it was taken from 4,200 kilometres away. The resolution of the photo will get better as it gets closer, and they'll hopefully release better images. Yeah, it was just a bit frustrating of like, oh, yeah, this is a fantastic achievement. Where's the photo? <laughs> so it's not the Indian Space Organisations, it's just the journalist who wrote this article's fault. Yes, okay? yeah, exactly that. It was New Indian Express. 
damn you. Right, cool. I do like the idea of writing an article about a photo and then just not including the photo. But just talking about it in excruciating detail. <laughs> yeah, picture paints a thousand <laughs> words. I tell you what, I'll just write a thousand words about it. Mostly black, blurry, the pixel at exactly <laughs> 40, 812 is dead. Also on that, you said... This camera was going around since September 2014, and then it's only just got a picture. Was it on a timer or something? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a hell of a lot of manoeuvring to leave Mars's orbit and go further out and get an like, approach Phobos. That's quite an incredible achievement. Sorry, so it's just been doing the planet since 2014. It's, yes. They only manoeuvred it recently. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes more sense. It's like six years to get and not press the camera button. <laughs> well, Phobos is tiny, and to try and take a photo of it from Mars, it'd just be a dot in the sky. It like You'd be able to know it's a moon based on the stars in the background, but it'd just still be a dot. You wouldn't be able to get a decent image of it unless you got close up, because it's only a couple of kilometres across. Mm. So, yeah, exciting news for Phobos, because that's... Uh, obviously going to be explored and it's quite interesting because I actually didn't know about Deimos being like significantly older than Phobos. I hadn't done much research into Deimos but yeah that, I found that actually quite interesting. I would assume they would have formed at the same time but no Phobos is like a third generation moon which is pretty incredible. Third generation moon is Phobos so it's younger and hip and happening. That explains the Phobos grooves. Oh. <laughs> There's a, a running joke there from uh, anyone who's listened to the previous podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> feel free to stop listening at this point. <laughs> All right, thanks. Moving on to the next piece of moon news I have. I think we've actually discussed this tiny little asteroid moon, which was given the adorable nickname of Diddy Moon, because it was discovered orbiting the asteroid of Didymos, or Didymos. It's spelled D-I-D-Y-M-O-S. That The moon had an original name of S2003 brackets S5A03 close brackets 1. <laughs> Catchy. It's like it's a prisoner. God, I knew you were going to mention that. It doesn't quite flow for the Les Mis musical. No. Have, having to just go Jean-Claude Van Damme or whatever the character's <laughs> Jean, name is. Jean Valjean. Yeah, having to just go step right forth s slash 2003 brackets s six five eight oh three close brackets one you are in deep trouble now uh javert is the person that says that yes javert is the police officer who says step forth and russell crowe yes that that's the one okay but I, yeah i also like the uh, look down look down well we're in space which way's down <laughs> We can move in three dimensions. <laughs> uh, but yes, this moon, originally called Diddy Moon, has now been called Dimorphos, which is named after the Greek deity, I think a deity, which had two forms. And there's a reason for this. And there's a reason why this tiny, tiny little moon, which is only 160 metres across, has actually been given a name. It's because it's going to be knocked out of its orbit. Is it? Yeah, yeah. It's Where? an exciting... It, it, this is the first asteroid-striking mission. It's to test it, to test to make sure that this actually works. So are we doing it as humans? We as humans are going to knock this moon not completely out of its orbit. We're just going to knock it a bit. And the idea being to see if we can actually knock asteroids off their trajectory. So you've got asteroids around the sun. 
and if we were to like blat a, a rocket into the asteroid it's actually quite hard to see if we've put a dint in its trajectory because we can predict what an asteroid's trajectory is, but the error bars on it are quite significant due to the gravitational pull of Jupiter, gravitational pull of even other suns, the uh, the galaxy, our own sun, uh, and then freak accidents like, uh, as it goes past other planets. So there's all these factors. But what is far more predictable is to knock an asteroid moon out of its orbit by a little bit, by even just changing the orbital period of like 10 to 20 minutes, that is within the error bars that we can look at it and go, yes, we have definitely done that. We have definitely knocked it off its trajectory. Before it was 12.1 hours, it is now 12.3. Because the gravitational pull of the asteroid that it's orbiting is significantly stronger than its surroundings. So it's a lot easier to measure if we've had an effect on it or not. Uh, cool. Have they done an impact analysis on how that will affect like, the tarot card readers on Didymus? Because, <laughs> like, you know, on this planet, you've got the tarot card readers say, oh, the moon's going around every 28 days. Duh, 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 duh. So if someone suddenly said, right, it's now going around every 29 days, then, you know, all their astrological charts are out. You're going to be in danger by 0.3 more? <laughs> from now on I predict in the future you're going to be smacked by a, a NASA asteroid blatting rocket so this is our, this this mission is called DART and it stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test which is a conveniently named mission I think they started with the acronym and worked backwards on it and it's going to be <laughs> launched in July 21 because if you look in the show notes I've got a picture of the orbit of uh, Didymos and it's orbits between Earth and Mars, and it goes actually beyond the orbit of Mars, and then it becomes really, really close to Earth's orbit. And when it comes really close to orbit, that's when they're going to test this uh, DART mission and see if we can knock Dimorpheus out of its orbit. Uh, and the reason it's called Dimorpheus is because the Greek deity had two forms, and Dimorpheus is going to have two trajectories, the one it's on now, and the one after we knock it out of its orbit a little bit. Well, I hope they've all assessed this game of cosmic snooker and they're not going to um, knock an asteroid into uh, ourselves or anything. I think the chances of that happening are slim to nil. And even then, they've picked an asteroid, which is, according to this, the height of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Uh, it's 160 metres across, so if it does enter the Earth's atmosphere, it would burn up for most of it, and you'd still have a pretty big chunk, and quite often it would just land in the middle of nowhere. It's very rare that asteroids actually hit a bit of land that's significant. But yeah, I, I think this is actually quite like an incredible little story, and I love talking about little obscure moons that no one really knows about. I, I'm a little sad that Diddy Moon is no longer going to be called Diddy Moon, but I'm glad that it has been given a name by the IAU, and it's one of the smallest objects in the solar system to have been given a name by the IAU. An official title, official denominator. Just on a sort of slightly more serious and less flippant note, uh, yeah, I did work in space department at Kinetic. I wasn't a space scientist. We were just squatting there in the same office because it was cheaper <laughs> than, than getting our own office. But we, I was working alongside um, someone I had lunch with, and they were trying to build a system to measure the change in trajectory of an asteroid when you smack something into it. Because there is a problem of, like, an asteroid at any point could come and hit the Earth. Or, more accurately, we spot an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth in a few months and we can do nothing about it. So the sort of governments are trying to find a way to deal with it. 
And the first thing you have to do is start sort of experimenting on asteroids of how much can we actually knock an asteroid off. And in order to do that, you have to have a system of lasers or measurements or something to go up to the asteroid and measure its trajectory before the impact and after the impact. And his job was to work out some sort of system of satellites around an asteroid that could measure the change in direct trajectory. That's really interesting. Was it was it theoretical or did he actually like have steps towards putting like into practice? Uh, I think it was a paper-based thing. And if he came up with a good idea, then it would get funding. I think it was the European Space Agency were asking for ideas. But one of the problems was... Once the asteroid moves off a bit, then it changes the gravitational pull. So if you imagine, the satellites might follow it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. It's, <laughs> so it's like, well, it hasn't moved at all. Well, it clearly has. You're just measuring kit. As, your measuring kit has just followed the asteroid. Well, they have an actual measuring kit in place for Dimorphos. They're going to put DART, the satellite that's going to crash land on Dimorphos, going to put it on the spacecraft, and they're going to launch it in theory. This is the plan. Uh, whether or not NASA's funding will be cut or everyone will be alive then, we'll find out. Uh, but they're going to launch it in July 2021. It's going to crash London Dimorphos in September 2022. It's about 11 million kilometres from Earth. And that'll nudge it into apparently a tighter orbit around Didymos. Then, in 2024, the European Space Agency is going to send its probe called Hera to the asteroid of Didymos and it'll measure the trajectory of Dimorpheus, a completely separate probe from the one that crash-landed into it, to check to make sure that it has indeed knocked it off course and changed the trajectory of it, which is incredible. Yeah, mate, maybe that was uh, Hero was the one he was working on. Really? Uh, I can't find him specifically, but yeah, um, there's a press release from Kinetic saying Hera is uh, a mission that they worked on and Kinetic responsible for the design and development of the onboard data handling subsystem. Yeah, that's taken a while because I worked at Kinetic like 15 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so things move fast in the world of space. <laughs> they, they sometimes do and they sometimes don't. Uh, but yeah, NASA's going to make science fiction science fact by blatting asteroids off course. We're now on to Jupiter, and a lot of stories, and I mean a lot of articles, were posting that Europa may host life. And to me, who's really into moons and moon-related stuff, this is nothing new to me. The fact that Europa may have harboured life, or may still harbour life, is something that has been batted around for decades. As soon as they realise, oh, it's got a subsurface ocean, oh, it's got the building blocks for life, it's got you know, hot water due to the volcanic plumes. It's got a saline ocean because of the salt, because they measured salt on the surface, so it's got a salty ocean. Ah, it's got the building blocks for life. And this story just keeps popping up like, oh, water on Mars. It's like, yeah, we know. We could see the ice, we could see <laughs> the ice caps. So it's good that people are getting interested in moons, but the fact that we're managing to pull together all this original news about Mars having a ring, uh, Didymos, and there's even some news about Pluto later on that we'll talk about. Uh, this just this is just a bit frustrating for, <laughs> for me to see. Yeah, I know. Move on. 
Uh, did you um, reply in the comment section? Repost in capital letters, <laughs> exclamation mark. Not quite. To be fair to them, it's basically putting together the pieces of the impact hypothesis. It's a study that has been put together and modelling how life might have existed or how the conditions for life might have come to be. So it's another step in the direction towards this. And it's just an exciting headline, the fact that a distant moon has a subsurface ocean that may harbour life. That's quite exciting. Uh, I'm just being pedantic and having a bit of a moan about it because, yeah, I know, move on. Look how clever I am. And by life, just in case there's conspiracy theorists listening, we're not talking about an underwater civilization akin to Atlantis. Yeah, we're not talking about aqua Daleks. <laughs> oh, that's... Uh, I thought, oh, that's even worse. <laughs> oh, no, they can actually go upstairs now. They just float up. No, we're just talking about, like, uh, bacteria that may have evolved into something like fluke worms or, like, uh, some kind of fish, maybe. Maybe. Uh, it's hard to tell because they won't have direct sunlight because it's subsurface. But then again, look at the stuff that's at the bottom of the ocean. There's some pretty creepy things down there. So it'll be akin to the, like, deep sea life that you see down there. But it's all theorised. It, it might have life there. It could support life now. We don't know. And we will know a bit more when they send something called the Europa Clipper, which is a NASA-backed mission. I think that's going to go in 2030, and it's going to look at the surface and hopefully drill down and go into the subsurface ocean. There's been some pretty cool visuals that I, that I remember looking at when I was doing some research for previous video. So, at the moment, Europa may host life the same way it may have hosted life over the last 30 years. Hopefully, on behalf of humanity, it will drill down and then inject some plastic bags and a six-pack holder into the ocean. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to say, you know, this is us humans, this is what we do. Uh, that's our flag of the oceans. Uh... Well, there might be life there. Quick, pollute it just to make sure there isn't. <laughs> So, the next planet out is Saturn. The moon that we're going to talk about Saturn is Titan. And this is potentially a bit of a dull headline, but it's actually quite incredible when you look at how they put it together. Saturn's moon, Titan, is drifting away faster than previously thought. So, Earth's moon is drifting away from us, about 3.8 centimetres per year due to tidal forces. Titan was measured to be drifting away. Well, actually not measured. It was calculated to be drifting away from Saturn at the alarming rate of 0.1 centimetres per year. But using Cassini data, they've actually measured that it's moving 11 centimetres per year. That doesn't seem a lot, you know, 0.1 centimetres versus 11 centimetres on an astronomical scale is pretty pitiful. You know, the margin of error for astronomy is usually 10% plus or minus. So the fact that it's like 0.1 centimetres, 100 centimetres, who cares? It's the fact that this has actually helped scientists figure out the theories of where a lot of the moons of Saturn have come from. Because what you can do is you can reverse engineer how old the moon is based on how far it's drifted. Because there's a point where, oh, well, it can't have drifted back that far because otherwise it'll have fallen into the planet. It must have originated at this distance and then migrated outwards. How fast is it migrating? Oh, 0.1 centimetres per year. Therefore, it started at around 
this area and reverse engineer back go like oh well 0.1 centimeters over x many years it's therefore that old but the fact that it was doing it a hundred times faster than thought that throws the age of titan a bit up in the air so they're like oh does this apply to the other moons as well so there's uh, a spanner thrown in the works of the saturnian moon system origins Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, 0.1 centimetres, who cares? 11 centimetres, who cares? However, yes, they're millions of years, actually. Yeah, you'll end up that actually Saturn or Titan was in the middle of Saturn or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow managed to get out. So they actually measured Titan's migration outwards from Saturn by looking at the stars in the background. So this archaic method of tracking a moon, they applied it to the photos taken by Cassini that they measured Titan's migration and were like, oh, it's moving more than we thought it was. So they actually got uh, a second team to look at a different data set uh, to see the migration of Titan over a 10 year period. And they did it by uh, radio science data collected by Cassini. So during 10 close flybys between 2006 and 2016, the spacecraft sent radio waves to Earth and the scientists studied how the signal frequency was changed by the interactions with the surroundings. And then from that, they reverse engineered and estimated how Titan's orbit changed. So how Titan interacted with those radio waves you're able to determine its orbit and therefore its orbital migration. That's incredible. That Yeah, that is amazing. Bear in mind when I mess around with my radio, it tunes in and out on like the slightest nudge of the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that scientists can somehow uh, test this at millions of miles away is uh, amazing. Yeah, that is... That's phenomenal. Although it would be embarrassing if it was, oh no, sorry folks, it was our satellite was uh, 11 centimetres out further than we thought. So, so to summarise, even though it is quite an insignificant distance of 11 centimetres, it has made a big impact calculating the age of Titan and just by actually measuring and confirming what was a calculated theory. So, yeah, Titan's going away from Saturn at 11 centimetres a year. Watch out your window, see if it goes past. That's what I say. <laughs> there it goes. Oh, it's a seagull, sorry. Titan's attacking those poor picnickers. Oh, no, wait, just a seagull. <laughs> I assume you wouldn't mind Titan, actually, outside, because it's a lot quieter. Oh, definitely. Yeah, leave a comment if you can actually hear seagulls in this podcast recording. Also, if you listen to the Seagull podcast and they're complaining that there's people talking about moons in the background, let us know. Moving on to... Uh, we're going to skip Uranus because there wasn't any moon news about that, only horoscope stuff. And we're going to go to Neptune's moon of Triton. And it's a mission that has been proposed to Triton. And there's a few opportunities for jokes here, Rick, so I'm sure you're going to like that. The mission to Triton is called Trident. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that so far. Which is also the same name as the UK's nuclear programme. So when I was looking at, oh, Trident mission, I was like, oh, no, wait, just submarine data, just talking about nuclear missiles and all these protests. But the Trident mission is going to go to Neptune's moon of Triton. It's a proposed mission. It's not necessarily going to happen, but it's got funding to help flesh out the details and hopefully put a prototype together so that NASA can slap it on a rock and go, yep, off you go. So it was one of four missions that got $3 million of funding to actually work out the nitty gritty, the astrodynamics, the engineering of the actual satellite. 
and the Trident mission is called Trident for multiple reasons. The mission has three mission statements. Oh god, it's not going to be one of these where everyone has to split it into three because it's now called Trident and some. Well, it's called Trident because of a three-pronged spear carried by the ancient sea god Neptune. Yeah, that's fine so far, but now if management keeps saying, right, we have to do everything in bloody threes, we're going to have a three-stage launch because we're Trident. We're going to have three people on duty watching it because we're Trident. <laughs> Um, so, the three-pronged approach to the Trident mission. One, study Triton's strange icy plumes. Because Triton is an icy moon. It's got quite a smooth surface. Doesn't look like there's a lot of craters on there. So, there's going to be icy plumes that have covered the surface in this smooth ice. So, it's going to study those. The second prong of its three-pronged approach is to map the solid surface because when, I think it was the Voyager missions went, they only managed to actually take photos of 40% of the surface because the rest was in shadow. So we only have 40% of Triton's surface actually explored. And the third pronged approach is to study the moon's surface in greater detail. <laughs> That's a bit of a catch-all, that last one. I would argue this three-pronged spear could just be a single-pronged <laughs> yeah. spear of study the moon's surface in greater detail, including the strange icy plumes, including mapping the rest, the 60% of the rest of the surface that was in shadow when it was last there. I feel sorry for you if you're on this project and you just hold your head in your hands every time a manager splits everything into bloody three bullet points because it's trident. Welcome to this dynamic, energetic, synergizing meeting where we are going to inform, educate and enlighten you <laughs> on this data, information and project details. <laughs> I don't know if you can swear on this or I can just see a NASA employee go and you can f*** off. <laughs> I know where you can stick that three-pronged spear, buddy. Uh, so yeah, it's it's obviously very exciting to go back to a moon, uh, one that was only partially photographed and one that is genuinely interesting. Triton disturbed the Neptunian moon system and caused this chaos within the inner moon, so it's a very, very interesting moon to talk about and to explore as well. But just this three-pronged approach really made me laugh. And it is only a proposed mission, it might not actually happen yet. So when I was trying to find the other sources to get more information about this, one really stuck out, and it was from israel21c.org, which is Uncovering Israel, which I think is like a tech website based in Israel. And the headline is, Israelis aim to reach Neptune's moon with Trident Project. And reading it, it was like, you know, waxing lyrical about the, the mission, be like, oh, it's going to go this far, it's going to cost this much, it's going to be the first back since the Voyager. It's not an Israeli mission, it's a collaborative effort from many scientists, mostly based in America, and it turns out that an Israeli firm is providing a very accurate clock. That's it. For the mission, or just to put on the wall in NASA ground control? <laughs> Uh, for the mission, okay. and this clock has been used as well, uh, or is going to be used on the European Space Agency's JUICE mission, which is going to go to Jupiter and explore the icy moons of Jupiter, I believe. So it's going to use their super accurate clock. But yeah, just reading this article, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. It's not Israel going to the moon. Like, you 
barely made it to the moon last time with bearer shift, you smacked right into the surface. I mean, A for effort, but didn't quite stick the landing. Like, sending a probe to Neptune? Don't don't run before you can walk, buddy. It's like the blokes near where I live go, yeah, we won the match. What do you mean you won it? You sat in a pub and cheered. It was those, uh, probably the athletes who have spent years training. They actually won the match and you did very little. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, To be honest, there is an element of that uh, in this podcast as well, because when I've, I know that I've caught myself saying it a few times, like, oh yeah, we know this. Yes, we, me being on the scientific team that did all the legwork and the number crunching. Oh, it's different if we say we know it, because yeah, we've just copied someone. Knowledge is transferable. That's fine. But credit is not. (laughs) Fair enough, that's a very eloquent way of putting it. I don't follow football, but thank God football has been won. Liverpool won football, apparently. And that's it. No more football. It's been decided. Liverpool won. Hooray. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm equally as uh, as uninterested. Uh, So yes, humanity is going back to Neptune. Hopefully with this three-pronged approach, which will involve America, Israel and Neptune. And finally, the last item to talk about in foreign moon news is the ex-planet, everybody's favourite dwarf, Pluto. It has five moons around it, the largest being Charon, or I think it's pronounced Sharon, actually. I think everyone just sees the CH and goes, Charon, but I believe it's Sharon. It's thought that the smaller moons, the very, like, asteroid-sized moons of Pluto, which are Styx, Nix, Kerbos, and Hydra, all named after deities of the underworld, it's thought that those four moons didn't form from an impact on Pluto, but instead formed from an impact on Charon. Ah, how do they know that? Uh, again, using mathematical models, because you can't exactly go back to Pluto now. New Horizons has been and gone, and is now looking at the depths of the Kuiper Belt, heading towards the Oort Cloud, or Oort Cloud? O-O-R-T, the thing that surrounds the solar system. But using data beamed back from New Horizons, uh, they've done some mathematical modelling, and the dynamics didn't quite work when they modelled it for the moons, including Charon, originating from an impact on Pluto. However, an impact on Charon created a huge amount of debris, which, uh, which over time, this debris coalesced into the moons that we see today, very much like Earth's moon, very much like the new theory for Mars's moons, the stuff we've talked about a million times before. But this mathematical model has not only suggested the origins of the other four moons. It's also suggested the size of the impactor that hit Charon that caused the specific amount of debris to get kicked out in the orbit that it is to actually create these moons, all just from, like, looking at these moons and just inferring the orbits and the data. And uh, it, it still boggles my mind after all these years that you could just get such information from, from these numbers. Yeah, that that's amazing. Uh, I'm I'm sort of imagining throwing two bags of flour together and working out every bit of debris. It's probably not accurate, but it's it's like that sort of thing. 
Well, you're not doing it by hand, and you're not looking at it like Rain Man. No. It's it's all computer simulations who, like supercomputers, do like a million calculators a second. But it also helps that we have these gorgeous images that have been been returned from New Horizons. There's one of the show notes of Charon, and it's got a big red spot on the surface, and then beneath it, it looks like uh, like a Christmas pudding with the icing kind of like cascading down. You've got like this ridge that goes around the center of it. Now this looks very much like the aftermath of a huge impact. So an impactor smacked into the top of it. It caused this huge crater, which is in red. It's a different color because it will have excavated the stuff from beneath it. And this could be lava or it could be tectonic faults that have caused this ridge to come up along the equator of Charon. So this is actually incredible. You have this theory of the origins for the moons, looking at the maths, and then you're able to take this photo and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Look, there's a huge crater. Yeah, it makes sense that there was a big impact on Charon billions of years ago and it formed these other moons. It's like working out a who done it, except it's not as much who done it as in who did the murder, but it's they've done the murder and now they're all going off into their own ways, separate ways, uh, different orbits, and therefore how much murdering did they do? The analogy broke down there, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked where it started. Well, we can get the same team on it to see where the analogy went and then how it originated <laughs> yeah, using yeah. millions of supercomputers. <laughs> Give them the end of the analogy. They will work out what happened at the beginning. Although, yeah, it's kind of like... Do you know those jigsaw puzzles? Because we're talking about jigsaw puzzles uh, this episode for some reason. Those jigsaw puzzles where you get the cover says, create a jigsaw puzzle that's the opposite of what's happening in the current picture. Oh, what? So on the on the box it will say you'll have lots of people sort of looking shocked or something and the image you are supposed to make is the thing that they're all looking at so that's a sort of hook to get you interested in buying this jigsaw because you don't know what it is but you're like oh look at all those people they want to see this thing or and someone's fainted oh okay so yeah i'm guessing it's that you could hand the that jigsaw puzzle to these nasa scientists and they won't even need to build it they'll just put it into their supercomputer and work out what the thing is i saw the most evil jigsaw imaginable the other day it is transparent perspex jigsaw thousand pieces because <laughs> you'd be like right Dod the corners and the edges. Ah, I'm done. Uh, yeah, that is quite nasty, isn't it? Oh, I'll try and find it and put it in the show notes. Or contact them saying, I, I do a podcast. Give me money, please. So a running theme of the podcast is very local moon news, where we talk about small towns across the world that happen to be called moon. Some of which are bigger than others, some of which are extinct, some of which are just basically a road in Wisconsin. They are all in America, funnily enough. Uh, the one that produces the most content for the podcast is Moon Townsville, Pennsylvania. And I follow quite a lot of their societies on Facebook. For example, they have, they're have they reopening the farmer's market thanks to COVID kind of easing off, apparently, in America. So farmer's market is now open. But I'm actually taking an interactive step and I've signed up for the 5K Glow Run and Walk. <laughs> have you now? I have. 
<laughs> you're not allowed out your house apart from one thing a day, but you're going using that to go to moon and do a run. <laughs> well, it's a virtual run. So the idea is you go somewhere where you can run and adhere to social distancing rules because we are recording this in July 2020 when we're still in the midst of the pandemic, even though people are acting like it's not. But that's by the by. So the idea is you register and then upload your time, maybe take some photos of you doing the run, and then you print off your certificate. So there's very little oversight, so I could enter a world record and print off my certificate. And are you going to do that, or are you going to do it properly, Andy? No, I'm going to do it properly. I, I went for a run earlier on today, actually. Uh, I'm quite keen on running, so I will do it properly, and I'll record my time and everything. Uh, one of the reasons why I did also sign up, in fact, uh, my wife also signed up for this as well. You could sign up and pay, I think, 10 or $20 for a swag bag with like a running shirt for moon parks and recreation. So we actually emailed them and hopefully they'll post it to us. Oh, brilliant. They offer free posting if you can't pick it up. <laughs> Cool. Did they not think that, uh, come on, it's going to be more local people who are sort of elderly and... Not some snotty little upstart across the yeah. Atlantic. Because, yeah, like, if all the listeners from all around the world just start asking for swag bags on Moon <laughs> and they have to post them out for free and then start posting world record times of... I did a 5k race in minus six minutes or something. Well, there is a, a limited time period in which you could enter and submit your times. And given my editing record with the podcast, it might take a few days. So I think by the time this comes out and people listen to it, they might have missed the deadline. I won't time it deliberately. There might be a few days where you could actually sign up and go for a run yourself. Uh, I did actually do something similar to this. There was a brewery in America last time I was there and you wrote a postcard from the brewery to anywhere and they post it for you for free because, you know, you're there drinking their beer. It's just like a nice little token. And when I handed it in, I said, this is going to the UK. Is that OK? I don't want to, you know, push my luck. And they said, well, that's on us. You're like rigging the system. And I felt really guilty. <laughs> How much does it cost to post? Probably like 10 cents extra or something. No, because I sent a lot of postcards when I was in America. It was, I think, like a dollar thirty per stamp. Oh, right. OK. So did you give them a whole wadge to post? <laughs> no, I only gave them the one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, I wouldn't right. have given like, I've been saving these since California. Here's 50. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> Oh, and I'll buy a beer, actually. No, I won't. I'll just pass it. <laughs> Tap water, please. I'll go to your rivals across the road. Yeah. <laughs> Complimentary bread and keep it coming. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'll be entering the Moon Parks and Rec 5K and entering my honest-to-God time. And next episode of the podcast, I'll let you know how I did and if my swag bag has arrived. Cool. I want a, a picture of the T-shirt. Yeah, if, if it arrives in time, I'll, I'll record the episode wearing the T-shirt. Marvellous. We are now on to most people's favourite feature, full moon of the month. <laughs> really? Hey. Sorry, as in really, is it most people's favourite feature? The few people I've spoken to who listen to the podcast do quite like this feature. Oh dear. <laughs> so, we're a little late recording this. We're recording it on the 8th of July, and the last full moon in the UK was actually on the 5th of July. It doesn't matter anyway that you've missed it, because it was all just clouds. Oh yeah, you couldn't see it anyway. But this... Moon was the Buck Moon. As in B-U-C-K, not 
be okay. Oh, yes, sorry. It's obvious to me because I'm reading it, but saying it out loud, yes, it's not book as in paper, dead trees with words on. No, it's book, B-U-C-K as in the deers there. Male deers, are they? Yeah, I think so. It's so called because this is when new antlers emerge on the book because they shed in spring and then they grow them over the year and they start to emerge now in July. And as usual, there's lots of other names for the full moon in July. There's the thunder moon because summer storms, that makes sense. Hay moon because that's when you're harvesting, you're collecting some of the dry grass so and you're collecting hay bales, so hay moon. There's the wart moon, spelt W-O-O-R-T, very much like those things that kids get on their hands because they can't just stop eating them when they're kids and it's actually a bunch of herbs is called a wart and july is the time when you collect herbs and spices allegedly i haven't done it because they're all collected for me already and i get them from the supermarket and more appropriately this time around it's also called the mead moon so it's the mead moon in june but now it's properly the Mead Moon because the pubs have opened in the UK. I, I don't think it was named because of that. Oh no, it was it was named ages ago. But it's quite appropriate that this moon is also known as the Mead Moon. Is it called the shout at the barman because he's put a one-way system in the pub and you're confused by it? Because according to local Gloucester news, that's what happens. So, sl- slow news day, apparently. The, the headlines were coming out saying like, oh, drunk people just don't socially distance at all. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> really? I did not see this coming. Good job. There's, there was always going to be a lot of judgment around this and there was also a lot of cherry picking. I've got a mate in London who was saying Soho was utterly rammed and that's what the news was mostly focusing on. They were like going down with the cameras, filming everyone, getting hammered and like ignoring social distancing and all that kind of stuff but he went out that night because he likes uh, walking around in the evening and he was saying it was actually pretty quiet for most places so they've just been cherry picking the bits of london that yeah. were busy yeah i thought they might yeah which you know it's kind of inevitable uh, there are two other names that i found for the july full moon uh, one of which is hungry ghost moon yeah. Which is from Chinese law. And I just love the idea of the moon coming over the horizon to the Pac-Man <laughs> sound of waka 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 Eating waka. the stars as it goes. Exactly. And then the hungry ghost comes after it. Oh no, it's a cloud. And then it eats the sun. And then suddenly the moon can chase it back. Uh, and the other moon I found was called the claiming moon. And why is it called that, Andy? Uh, well, I don't like this origin, but it's from old times where you had like different villages and whatnot and apparently people from one village the young men from one village would go to another and claim the young maiden uh... which is grim and they say romance is dead i'd argue it it didn't really start if that's what they used to do (laughs) yeah dead on arrival uh, so, yes, there's many names for the July moon, as there are for others as well. Uh, but as you said, uh, well, I think a few episodes ago, we'll probably be retiring this feature when there aren't any moon names that we've discussed. But what I might do is actually get people to suggest names. Be like, what would you call the full moon for this month or full moon for this time of year? Is that for, like, yeah, for the modern era? Yeah, for the modern these, era. these are all very back when man was in tune with nature yeah but it's not it doesn't doesn't relate to modern days really yeah so july moon could be the that reduction moon 
absolutely. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, so we're going to end this little feature by continuing with our Suan tribe lore, where the previous six months have been hard time, long day, sore eye, and then it went into frog, idle, and full leaf, and this moon is red berry. So the hangover has kind of subsided thanks to the cure of frogs being idle and having a bit of greenery with full leaves and they're off picking red berries to kind of like as a nice afternoon walk to really put the hangover to rest lovely what a picture you paint I, i'd like to think so i like this little law that we're creating probably bad cultural appropriation <laughs> to get the sewer tribe afterwards uh moving on and so the next moon is Io, the innermost of the Galilean moons. Made famous by the Teletubbies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've done that joke like before. I can't remember it, so... It's had a year's grace, so again. <laughs> yeah, that, that's allowed. Comedians do it, so we'll, we'll, we'll let it slide. This is the feature where we try to talk about every moon of the solar system. We've talked about the Martian moons, we've talked about the inner moons of Jupiter so far, which there are four. And now we're on to the next outermost moon, which is Io, one of the Galilean moons. There are four Galilean moons and Io being the innermost one. Something that has just occurred to me right this second, there's a bunch of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter that probably have moons around them. Oh, great. That's yeah, screwed up our system already. Yeah, balls. We'll have to start all the podcast again. <laughs> oh, no. Um, tell you what, we'll do the asteroid ones after Jupiter. Yeah. Because they've got weird orbits. Anyway, Io, it is a phenomenal moon. When people are like showboating moons and be like, hey, kids, come look at space. It's awesome. Io is one of the poster girls that they trot out, even though it's named after one of the male Zeus lovers. Io is a volcano moon. It is this big ball of volcanic activity that is constantly erupting. It's got 400 active volcanoes on its surface. It's got mountains bigger than Mount Everest and the volcanic plumes that it coughs out. Uh, you see how high lava gets here on Earth. Well, it coughs it up 500 kilometers above the surface. Like I'm gonna, I, I've shown this before, but I'm gonna show it again here. If you're watching the YouTube video is, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Here is the Galilean satellite approaching Io and you can see the volcanic plumes pouring out of the surface, covering the top half of the planet. And there's even another volcano going on in the bottom half of the planet as you look at it. It is phenomenal. There is so much to talk about when it comes to Io. We can just talk about like its atmosphere, we can talk about its discovery, we can talk about its exploration. There is so much to talk about, unlike the last few moons where it's just like, ah, oh, there's a crater. It's the fast one. Uh, next. Whereas this one, we could do an entire episode about it. There is so much to talk about it. So I think the best approach is, what would you like to know about Io, Rick? Uh, well, the basics, the uh, size and speed, and how long it takes to go around Jupiter. Okay, all the information I don't have in the show notes. One second. So Io, 3,600 kilometres across. And it's about 1% the maths of Earth. And it goes around Jupiter, 
with an orbital speed of 17 kilometers a second. So half the speed of the fastest moon, Metis. I'm trying to remember Metis, and that was about eight hours, wasn't it? Uh, yes. So half the speed. It does 16 hours. That's pretty good to go around Jupiter. Uh, its orbital period is 1.7 days, Earth days. Oh, right. Yeah, because it's quite far out. Metis is uh-huh. really, really close, whereas Io orbits at a distance of... 400,000 kilometers, so just a little bit further out from our own moon. And it's roughly the same size as well. In fact, Io is the fourth largest moon in the solar system, and it's the third largest of the four Galilean moons, the other two being Callisto and Ganymede, Ganymede being the largest of the solar system. Its mass actually takes up 22% of the whole of the Jovian moon system. So if you've got all the moons of Jupiter, put them on a scale, Io takes up 22% of it. <laughs> it pulls its weight then, because there's like 100 Jovian moons, aren't there? No, there's 79 Jovian moons. Okay, uh, so by rights, they get about 1.3% each, Well, they should be. Well, it should be, yeah, but the it's Galilean moons take up 99% of it. But you said before, pulling your weight... And that is a great way to describe why Io is so volcanic. Because its weight is constantly being pulled. Ha ha! So it's in an orbital resonance with Europa and Ganymede. So for every one orbit Ganymede does around Jupiter, Europa does two, and Io does four. So there is this constant overlap, and I'm going to put up this lovely diagram from Wikipedia up on the screen now, and I'll link it to the show notes about the orbital resonance. And this constant alignment means that the surface is getting pulled in many directions. It's like an accordion getting pulled in and out, and if you get a rubber ball or one of those stress-release balls and you keep squeezing it, it heats up because of the friction, and that's exactly what's happening to Io. So you have Jupiter that's constantly pulling on the closest surface all the time, but then when Europa kind of aligns with Io in in an eclipse-like fashion, it's pulling on the outer side of Io briefly, so that'll like stretch it a little bit. And then occasionally you've got Ganymede way back because it's so big, it's got even more gravitational pull on it. So you get Europa and Ganymede pulling it again. So it's constantly got this stress and strain that's squeezing it over and over again. It's been doing this for like millions of years. So there's all this friction internally within Io that's heating it up and stirring it up and causing this volcanic activity. Over 400 volcanoes on Io. So it's the universe's stress ball. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or Jupiter's stress ball. Yeah, Jupiter's stress ball. Wow. And not only that, there is other ways that it's heating up as well. Like, that's the primary source, in fact, pretty much the sole source, but it gets bombarded by radiation from Jupiter as well, ionising radiation, and it receives 3,600 rems, which is 36 sieverts of ionising radiation per day. To put that in context, doses of greater than 100 rem, or 0.1 sieverts, received over a short period of time will result in death in a few weeks. Sorry, what point one sievert will kill you? If you have a an ionizing source in front of you, kicking out point one sievert, you're looking at it, look at it for an hour, it'll probably give you deadly cancer and you'll be dead in a few weeks. <laughs> right, so 36 sieverts is... Um, bad. <laughs> 360 times as much, uh, so yeah, bad. It's not a good place to live then. No, it's not. And not only that, the lava that's constantly on the planet, it's not like the lava here on Earth. It's a lot ruddier. 
because of the, the gravity on Io is weaker and that the sulfur within the soil and the chemical makeup is different than the lava and magma here on Earth. And as a consequence, the lava is actually ruddier. Runnier? Yeah. As in, as in it's like, it could be like water. Yeah, it's less viscous than the lava here on Earth, but perhaps not as low viscosity as water. But it runs a lot further, which is why the surface always has these discoloration. Like, have you got a photo of Io up there? I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for you now. So you can actually point, you can pick out the volcanoes on that pretty easily. Yes. Yeah, they are big spot things, but yeah, I can see a few sort of fissures or rivers, presumably rivers of lava that are <laughs> very unpleasant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That bit at the top is this huge lake, and I think it's a subsurface lake that it was a, it was a study they did where one of the Jovian satellites, I think it was Juno, focusing on Io. And due to the position of the satellite and the position of Io, Europa actually went in front of it and eclipsed it slightly using this like infrared radiation. They were able to just like map far more data by using the eclipse of Europa in front of Io. It was a phenomenal study. I'll link it in the show notes. But this subsurface lava lake exists on Io and they're just able to get this from just looking at the amount of infrared radiation that it's bombarding out, the sheer amount of heat that it's bombarding out. It, it's incredible. This this volcanic world, it, there's so much going on there, which is why it's one of the most interesting moons in the solar system. Did you ever get around to doing the interesting moons ranked list? No. I'm going to wait until I'm in a uh, secluded hovel and like one of those live off the land kind of situations just me and the list being like right let's do this yeah well it could have like a knockout competition oh like Like, the brackets yeah Like, like every week there's like a moon league interesting competition I'll just give you four random moons that have nothing to do with each other. But then the winner of those four goes on to the next. Oh, well, it could be a league competition and, you know, there's a whole sponsorship deal and then drug scandal and all sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Gradually you work out which is the most interesting moon. Who's been doping on sulphur? You get post-match interviews in front of the sponsorship board with, like, Io, who just spews radiation at you. No, it's spew lava. It gets radiation from Jupiter. Oh, okay. So, I could I could keep talking about Io for absolutely ages, but I think I've uh, waxed a lyrical about it enough. But basically, in short, Io is phenomenal. Just find an article about it in, uh, like, Earth Sky or Space. They're really good sources for finding information about moons. Uh, the Wikipedia article is really, really... It's very long because there's a lot to talk about with Io and it's just a really good rundown. I know Wikipedia gets a lot of flack. If you see something like, hang on a minute, I didn't think that was the case, always check the references and always check the sources. But it's still a good jumping off point for getting a base information about some of the bigger moons of the solar system like Io or like the Plutonian moon system and Charon and whatnot. So finally, well, what are you going to refer to this moon as, Rick? Oh, this is the Accordion Lava Moon. <laughs> I remember, well, I remember it because you do talk about it in the pub uh, occasionally as well. Yes, I, I love talking about this moon. It, it never ceases to amaze me. And I get on my phone. The oh, beauty of smartphones is you could just like go, look at this. And then I can show that footage of the volcanoes erupting. And people are always like, oh, actually, that is really cool. Oh, you were right. You weren't talking <laughs> nonsense. Io is going to be the accordion lava moon. Love it. So just randomly, have you made a video on Io? 
No, not yet. I'm saving that one for further down the line. The next Moon I'm Toying we're doing a video about is uh, Callisto, because we talked about it a bit last podcast, and I, I remember doing some base research about Callisto, and there was some pretty interesting stuff there to talk about. I might also do one on Diddy Moon, now that it's got an official IAU name, because it's just quite adorable. That's the episode. Thank you very much for listening. Next time we'll be talking about the next outermost moon of Jupiter, which is Europa. And again, lots to talk about with Europa. And stick around to find out what my 5k times will be and if the swag bag arrives from Moon Townsville, Pennsylvania. So until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! So if that makes the cut. In the interest of taste, I'll probably cut it. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs>